We would first like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. We further extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello and welcome to the Women in Wildlife podcast. You're joined by your co-hosts, Eliza and Maddie. So get ready to delve into all things women, wildlife and gender equality in STEM. Hey Mads, how you going? I'm so good and so excited to be here today recording with you guys. It's been such a long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. It's so exciting to finally be bringing this idea into fruition after what feels like many years talking about it. So for those of you that don't follow our page already and haven't heard about Women in Wildlife, we are an online community of like-minded people aiming to connect and amplify women and non-binary persons working in the wildlife industry across the globe. Eliza started the platform at the beginning of 2021 and I came on board about 12 months later. Since starting Women in Wildlife, my most absolute favourite part has been chatting to and connecting with women all around the world. So I think that having this podcast is going to be a really organic and meaningful way to bring our usual social media written interviews to life. Yeah, and today we're lucky enough to have Dr. Keita Ashman, a threatened species adaptation ecologist at World Wildlife Fund. Yeah, Keita was really the most perfect person we could have picked to be our opening episode. She was so easy to chat to and so incredibly insightful. We learned a lot about her current role as well as her PhD in spatial dynamics and koalas. We were also able to delve into what changes she'd like to see for women working in this industry and some hurdles that she'd have to overcome to get where she is today as a successful woman in STEM. We really hope you enjoy this chat as much as we did. So let's get into it. We are excited to have our first official guest on our podcast, so we'd like to give a warm welcome to Dr. Keita Ashman, Threatened Species and Climate Adaptation Ecologist at World Wildlife Fund Australia. Yeah, huge welcome to Keita. We're so excited to not only have you on as our first guest, but to finally meet you um, after chatting quite some time. So yeah, we're really big fans of your work and we're very keen to pick your brain. Thanks, guys. Keen to be here and excited to chat to you too. Awesome. So first up, Keita, can you just give us a brief overview of your journey, your degrees, jobs and other experiences that have led you, to, led you to where you are now and have you always been interested in working in threatened species ecology and anthropogenic changes? Oh the origin story okay <laughs> how deep are we going? Um, in terms of um, my journey in wildlife I started out I actually started out I'm going to go like slightly like pre-wildlife um, finished up high school, thought I wanted to be a medical doctor, people doctor, um, started a pre-med degree after a semester, found out pretty quickly I didn't have the required empathy to be a human <laughs> doctor, um, not a huge fan of people. So um, went traveling, always from a really young age, been really interested in wildlife and nature and big trees. Um and so after coming back from travels, I was like, yeah, like environmental science or like something in that virus space sounds cool. Um, and I did, I started out a bachelor degree at Deakin University studying wildlife and conservation biology. Um, and like instantly was like, 
this is my tribe. Like, this is amazing. I remember like first year feeling so inspired by some of the lecturers and like some of the content that we were doing. So I did that and then probably like, it was probably only towards the end of second year or maybe even early third year. I was just kind of like the first couple of years, I was like, please get degrees, baby. Let's just enjoy ourselves. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then kind of third year, I was like, well, hold on now. Hold on. What's this honors degree thing? Like research could be cool. Um, and so finished up my undergrad and pretty quickly jumped into an honors degree in evolutionary biology. Um, so I was pretty interested in um, the way in which kind of evolution and the evolutionary process kind of plays out across different organisms. So I did my honours on a species of moth and looked at how different antennal structures are formed from an evolutionary perspective. So you get those moths that have like the really simple kind of just like prongs versus those like really cute, fluffy, feathery antennae. Um, so anyway, I did my honours project on that. Loved it. Loved the research components. Love moths. Um, but it was very lab based because it was like an evolutionary study looking at like, you know, basically those traits pass through time and all kinds of like scanning electron microscopy stuff and like very cool, enjoyed it. But I was like, I feel like I'm keen to do more research, um, but want to do something that's potentially more fieldy and want to do something that has more of like a real world solutions focus, hopefully tangible impact um, for wildlife. And so jumped into a PhD, um, still at Deakin. Yes, Deakin, um, <laughs> through and through. Um, but uh, jumped into a PhD on um, spatial dynamics, distribution and abundance of koalas um, in these kind of plantation agricultural landscapes in Southwest Victoria. So spent three years kind of walking around, doing lots of veg surveys, uh, did a, an abundance modeling kind of chapter and that was hell, but like good to get through it. Um, and then kicked into some stuff on spatial dynamics, um, captured 40 koalas every couple of months radio tracking them gps collaring them just like stalking the hell out of these koalas for like a solid year um which was fun and like also traumatic um, in many different occasions but um is great and I had an amazing supervisor and just really actually one of those freaks who really enjoyed doing a phd and loved the process um so finished that uh when did I I handed in my PhD thesis it would have been January 2020 um and then went to Vanuatu with my best friend and was like yes finished PhD Woo, time to go like have a lovely time and COVID was like just starting to circulate and like it had been in the country for a little bit but I was like don't worry about that it's just gonna be like bird flu swine flu Ebola like it's, it's cool um went on this celebratory trip, came back and it was kind of like shut down. Um, and I'd started a job actually, my first kind of grown up research position in um, Professor David Lindemeyer's lab at Australian National University um, as kind of like a 
field tech kind of biodiversity officer position um, collecting data in the Central Highlands to look at the impacts of different kind of land management practices and especially the impacts of logging on parts of the forest and the ways in which, um, you know, that plays out through kind of long-term study sites. So I started doing that um, early 2020 when I got back from that trip and everything kind of shut down and Melbourne got was like especially shut down real hard. Um, and then I saw this position pop up with WWF and I'd been chatting to them through the koala stuff with my PhD. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. Like I'm already in this job and this is great, but like threatened species and climate adaptation ecologists, like that sounds great. That sounds pretty varied. It sounds like it had a pretty good spread and lots of potential for impact. So I'll just cast my hat in the ring. And um, here I am three years later <laughs> as a threatened species and climate adaptation ecologist. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty wild ride. Like I started at WWF in April, 2020. Um, which is kind of when the lockdown got real serious. It was like full on, like you can't even leave your house unless you have these five reasons. And like, you know, it was pretty full on. So um, I didn't meet a single colleague for like a year. I was just like, this was it. And I would just like do this and then be like, what, do I even exist? Like, it was just like such a weird time to be like starting a new job and like really difficult sometimes too, because like, when you start a new job, you like make friends and then like those same friends, like new people start and you can be like, hey, what's this form? How do we do this? Are we supposed yeah. to be doing that thing? But like you start a job and you just like dial in and have a meeting and then you like go off and make a cup of tea and cry because you feel stupid because you don't know how to do anything. So went through that for quite some time. <laughs> Glad to say we're out of that now. Um, but yeah, it's I've been here for... Mm, what are we getting on to like three and a half years now? And um, my role's pretty varied. Um, it's basically like a national program that is trying to um, implement kind of on-ground projects and throw species lifelines to kind of keep them hanging on when they're being impacted by the climate um, or the climate change and climate instability. Um, but, you know, behind the scenes often sits stuff that... Um, you know, advocacy and policy and legislative pieces to try to work on those larger step change, um, both for species and for climate change. So that is the longest ever answer to how'd you get to where you are now? <laughs> no, thank you so much for that. I definitely relate to a lot of the stuff you said at the beginning. Um, yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after school either. And yeah, I went traveling and sort of fell in love with the environment. So definitely relatable. And I think Mads is quite similar as well. Um, but yeah, and I thank you so much for that. Your journey's been amazing. And Manny and I sort of have spoken a lot about dream jobs and you're definitely working one of them for us. So it's really great to hear oh, how you got there. 100%. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask quickly before we move on to the next question. How did you find the transition going from like full-time uni to a full-time job? Because I know I personally found it quite difficult. I guess you kind of went into a research field, so it was quite similar. But I know when I found like leaving uni, I didn't realise how much I kind of made study my hobby in my life. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I just wanted to kind of see what how you found that transition and if you found any difficulties and maybe some tips for people also making that transition as well. Yeah, it was um it was pretty wild. Like the transition from like even mentally, just like 
identifying as this like full-time student Mm -hmm. to like now I am like a researcher or like an ecologist or like whatever you you are um even just that mental step change was like pretty crazy and I think that like for a lot of us who are studying in whatever capacity but especially when you start doing further study like an honors degree or a master's or a PhD um I think what I noticed which is a positive was there's this constant like gnawing nagging guilt that you're like I should I'm relaxing right now I'm reading a book or I'm watching tv or I'm cooking a nice meal I'm out with my friends but I should really be working on my thesis or I should really be doing that analysis yeah um and so like a positive shift was not really having that guilt anymore because it's like I work from if you've got really good boundaries then it's like my job's from these hours to these hours on these days and that's what I get paid for so I switch off after that obviously there's exceptions to those rules but the guilt kind of like faded a bit at least in that regard um working for a not-for-profit there's like a whole new guilt beast which is very hard to navigate um but I think yeah just like rewiring okay I'm not a student anymore I'm an adult I'm a grown-up and you know I'm you know a professional I guess there's a lot of people who are mature age students I was as well but um there's an a bit of an identity crisis that I think a lot of people go through when you make that transition from like no longer being a student to like now being a professional um in terms of like working through it um I think like most things I was kind of just like well this is gonna take time and like I'm just gonna be as kind to myself mentally as I can and like just try to really consciously like do like positive self-talk because like yeah I think any of those pretty big life changes where you're going from like one life stage to another life stage um I think it really feels like growing pains like when you're a kid and you're like oh this is not great um but you're they're growing pains because you get through them and you come out the other side of them and you're like you've you've grown and you're this like new version of yourself and you know it's not it doesn't always have to be like the next iteration like a better version or anything but like it's just an evolution of yourself and I think being kind in that process, kind to yourself in that process is pretty important, but also like maybe not getting too attached to any of those stages is also pretty important. Even, um, yeah, as you said, going through that transition during COVID must have been a particular challenge, mm. um, especially with a PhD. I think you get really engrossed in a certain topic and that's all you can think about yeah. for three or four years, um, which can be very sure. And having to just forget about that afterwards. Totally. Speaking of your PhD, uh, you did obviously touch on it a little bit, but are you able to elaborate a little bit more and um, sort of what your findings were within your PhD? Yeah, for sure. So um, I, I, you know, as I kind of mentioned, I wanted to do something that I thought was going to be like, have this like create an impact and be like solutions focused. And like, you know, I think we all start out PhDs thinking we're going to change the world. And I am at least uh, in my sake, I did not change the world. Uh, But uh, I learned heaps of cool stuff. And I think, yeah, I think that like, I mean, to zoom out, um, I, in Victoria, koalas are a really interesting one. 
um, because they are not listed as a threatened species. And so like I was interested in koalas. Um, well, I wasn't really specifically interested in koalas. I was interested in spatially dynamic systems. So how animals navigate through different areas based on what's going on in the landscape. And so one of the, the most spatially dynamic systems, um, you know, with the exception of maybe logging is the harvesting of plantations. That's like formally, that's established on formally kind of historically cleared areas. And then koalas are a species that's highly mobile. And because they will move into plantations, because these plantations are food tree species, but they're also, they're basically cut down to be turned into like paper, um, it creates this kind of like really weird, like system that's just constantly in flux between like plantation growing, plantation being harvested, roadside vegetation in between, dotted throughout these national parks. And so um, I guess, once we start to transition away from unsustainable means of sourcing things like wood and paper and all the other products that you know come out of cutting things down what we need is like viable solutions to transition towards and so plantations are really in the forest game um, plantations are more or less the viable solution and so understanding what that landscape looks like, how it plays out for some of the species that we tend to put a lot of time and effort and funding and stuff towards like koalas was kind of why I was interested in it. Um, in terms of findings, there's a lot of koalas in South, <laughs> Southwest Victoria. Um, so first off, we wanted to look at um, where koala habitat is and model across the landscape the koala habitat based on a whole bunch of you know months and months of vegetation surveys that I did and then following on from modeling habitat right across that area I wanted to understand um, try to get an understanding of the abundance of koalas across that area as well and what that looks like um, and so I did a whole bunch of um, not just vegetation surveys but also koala surveys looking at their numbers in plantations versus linear strips of native vegetation like roadside vegetation versus the numbers that we'd get typically in larger continuous areas of forest like national parks or state reserves or that type of thing. Um, so collected a whole bunch of that data and then literally read a book and spent two months learning how to do a really complicated analysis um, to model both the koala habitat and abundance um, estimates right across southwest Victoria. And so um, what we found was that there were slightly more koalas in plantations than you would find in native roadside vegetation or in um, those more continuous areas of forest, um, which kind of in the onset suggests to us that the plantations are like pretty high quality habitat for them. I guess because they're basically, you know, you're planting a whole bunch of trees in very close proximity that's like relatively well connected, whether it's to other plantations or whether it's to kind of roadsides and national parks. Um, so once we understood that there were more koalas in plantations than there were in the surrounding native vegetation, um, we wanted to get a bit of an idea of how they moved through those landscapes. And so that's where the GPS study came in. So I put GPS and VHF collars onto 40 koalas that we captured. We had 20 koalas 
in a landscape that was dominated by plantations and then 20 koalas in a landscape that was dominated by native vegetation and compared their movements to see whether or not they're moving, you know, further, um, you know, more often um, or any of those metrics um, in plantations versus in native kind of veg and what that might mean for when a plantation is harvested, where do the koalas go and how far can they move and what type of considerations do we need to kind of have in place when we're operating in that spatially dynamic system. Um, but we didn't find a statistically significant difference between um, koala movements in the plantation kind of areas as opposed to in the native vegetation areas. Um, obviously, we found a difference between male and female koalas with males moving much further, which is what you'd expect to see. Um, but it seems like they're they're moving, they have similar home ranges um, across both of those landscapes. So um, it was interesting. I think those findings kind of just like underpin that plantations can be like a really valuable temporary resource for, the, for wildlife, um, especially if they're planted in a way to provide a temporary resource um, in terms of like, you know, maybe planting out an understory or a midstory or whatever. But then there's a welfare consideration that comes into play once those plantations start getting harvested. Because if you've planted up these areas that basically act as, you know, temporary habitat, when you're taking away the temporary part of it and it's, you know, getting cut down, what do you then do with the wildlife that's moved into it? Um, so there's a whole bunch of different protection measures that are in place for people to have to walk through plantations before they harvest them and spot the koalas and then protect, you know, the tree that it's sitting in. And I haven't looked into these prescriptions for a while, so they might be out of date. But when I was working in there, it was like nine surrounding trees. And so there's like these little islands that get left across the landscape of where koalas have been sitting. But one of the issues is that there are a lot of koalas in those areas. And so if you're continuously kind of planting more and more plantations, and koalas are breeding up in those plantations and then we're coming in and harvesting them and then those koalas will eventually have to move into surrounding native vegetation you start to get issues of overabundance and you start to get issues where um, you'll see you know the overall habitat quality start to decline and you get trees start dying because there's too many koalas and we've seen issues like that in Cape Otway we've seen issues like that in Framlingham and so I guess managing those landscapes in a way that takes into consideration the fact that you're going to have wildlife moving into them and the fact that you have to then account for wildlife moving out of them, harvesting them maybe in a, a more landscape scale approach where it's like, okay, well, if we harvest here, there's a plantation over here that they can move into. And when we harvest here, we've got to make sure that this one is big enough for them to come back into it. Or, you know, it could look like whatever, but rather than just harvesting it willy-nilly or harvesting it without really considering that animals will need to move, um, that's what we were kind of, that was the, the key kind of finding was basically um, plantations can be good, but there's a whole bunch of ethical considerations that sit behind that. And we need to really um, be operating at a landscape scale when we start to implement these types of things as a solution. Yeah, that's really interesting as well. And I think a lot of people don't really look at how we can work together with mm. the kind of just 
put in a way that like oh we need to make everything best for biodiversity which is obviously the goal but there is a way that we can work harmoniously and it's just yeah like you said researching and finding a way that will work for not only humans but for the animals as well and I think that's really interesting do you know any anything like any plantations that are actually taking that into account or is it more still in like the research phase at the moment I think there's um so there's a couple of plantation companies um operating in Southwest Victoria um, and various other places that are really interested um, in this type of research. They are funding research as well, which is great to see. Um, I've heard talk of some of those um, companies trying to operate at a landscape scale. And I think um, there's probably a fair few that say they do it, um, whether or not it's actually done um, and whether or not it's actually done in line with what we know about the ecological principles that apply across a landscape scale context, whether or not it's done factoring in what we know about the biology and ecology of some of the species. Um, probably a bit of a question mark <laughs> for me on that. Absolutely. And yeah, you didn't say before that you didn't change the world with your PhD, but that sounds like amazing uh, findings and yeah, really gives a lot of value to the topic. Um, it is very interesting that the koalas chose the preference over um, the plantations over the native trees. Obviously, just um, some speculation, but why do you think that might be? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, <clears throat> I think there's probably a few things at play. Um, I don't know. So Eucalyptus globulus, um, aka blue gum, is the tree species that's planted in that area that I was studying. And so um, it's apparently quite a nutritious um, eucalypt that is um, preferenced quite a bit by koalas. So I think, especially in areas like we observed a pretty strong trend moving from east to west across the landscape where we have the highest densities of koalas in the east and gradually less koalas towards the west. Um, and we also saw a shift in the tree species from east to west in terms of like the roadside vegetation was more like nutritious species, things like managum and swamp gum, which they like, and then blue gum, which was kind of in the mix in the plantations. And then the further west you went, it got a bit drier and you had more like messmates and stringy barks and those eucalypts that are typically not as nutritious. Mm -hmm. So I think in those landscapes where the native vegetation is not as high quality for koalas and the plantations offer a like potentially higher quality um food tree um that could be a factor and then i guess also energetically it's probably a bit easier to kick around in a plantation as opposed to having to cross you know paddocks that are filled with cows that might stamp you to death or cross a road where you might get hit by a car or you know like um Koalas are pretty smooth brained and not much going on in the thinky thinky parts, but the ones who are likely to persist better, like, yeah, maybe they've clued in on the fact that it's like a bit of a smorgasbord with like not much effort required for the plantations. Yeah, awesome. No, it's really interesting. Thank you. You mentioned a bit before about your current role as well. What does your day to day kind of look like at the moment? Oh, at, at the moment being the, um, the, the key term. So um, it's been like a bit 
crazy um, right now because um, a few weeks ago, probably three going on four weeks ago, we started a campaign trying to end native forest logging in a greater glider stronghold in New South Wales. So um, things have been thrown up in the air a little bit since that campaign started. So um, this morning, you know, caught the train into work, got in a couple of meetings, had a look through my emails on the train and then kind of out of the blue, oh, Sydney Morning Herald wants to speak to you a couple of grads for their media for the day. And then um, things like that kind of pop up pretty often um, now that we're kind of talking about these more contentious issues or things that people kind of really want to dial into in a media capacity. Um, but I guess um, zooming out a little bit, um, especially like last year, more the case, um, my role is probably split three or four weeks um, in the office that might look like general project management staff answering emails, filling in forms, um, tracking impact of some of the projects that we're collaborating on. Um, and then also things like writing papers and doing analyses um, that kind of are relevant and contribute towards, you know, the, the larger pieces that we're working on. Um, going to meetings with politicians, um, having some of those inside track conversations that keep pushing forward those policy and legislative pieces, because I think when I was working as a researcher at ANU and this role popped up, I knew the position that I was in at ANU was great and I knew that I could, probably could have spent my whole life working in that lab, um, you know, as an ecologist, creating a great impact. Um, but I saw this role as an opportunity to kind of create even more impact because it cuts through, it's not just writing papers and I'm not saying that that's not that's not all that researchers do but I think working for a not-for-profit um, especially one like WWF who has you know such a large following and kind of has quite um, a bit of clout that allows me to kind of lean into connections with government connections with you know academia and connections with communities and being able to do that media outreach and engagement, it's just kind of like hitting it from all different angles um, when it's, you know, a piece that we really care about. So um, yeah, there's that's probably like 70% of my time is that stuff, project management, writing papers, talking to politicians, doing media stuff. Um, and then 30% is um, getting to go out in the field <laughs> and actually do field ecology stuff. Um, and remind myself that I am actually a field ecologist who's been taken captive in, in the body and 70% of the life of the project manager. <laughs> so the, the field-based stuff, um, we've got a few projects that are happening, but last year it was probably split. Last year and, and probably most of this year has been split between um, a few different projects on kind of two species. So greater gliders have taken up a lot of my time. Um, so field work for that has looked like spotlighting surveys, vegetation surveys, um, climbing lots of trees, capturing greater gliders from hollows, um, putting on GPS and VHF collars, um, doing kind of long-term monitoring at sites for those types of things, installing nest boxes, um, 
replanting trees, doing all of that restoration work. Um, and then the other species that I've been kind of focusing on for the last little while is Western swamp turtles, which are a critically endangered species of uh, terrestrial turtle um, over in WA. And so the field work associated with that kind of looks like um, getting turtles from captivity and um, putting VHF tags onto them um, and then kind of translocating them down into an area where they haven't occurred before because they're a very climate susceptible species. So some of the researchers at um, University of Western Australia had modelled which swamps were kind of going to be those Goldilocks swamps, you know, not too hot, not too cold, because obviously um, turtles need kind of certain temperatures to be able to grow and, you know, be able to kind of have all the energy and everything else that they need. Um, so, yeah, dropping them into these new swamps, monitoring them, um, radio tracking, getting down on your hands and knees. Um, it's called puddling. I only learned this term like last year um, where you're like, you have someone with the VHF receiver that's like shouting numbers at you about like how close this turtle might, may or may not be to you. And you just got like, you're on your hands and your knees and waiters just like, oh, I think it's you. Oh my God. <laughs> so it's very, um, it's weirdly both stressful and extremely satisfying when like out of the muddy depths, you feel a turtle shell and you just kind of like lift it up like Simba and you're like, yeah, I got it. So it's lots of that as well. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like you've got a very versatile role and I guess it would keep you super busy. And um, yeah, it's what you touched on a bit earlier. I think the power of education is sometimes a bit underestimated. And like you said, you can research and have all this information, but if no one's relaying it without all the jargon, then it's not really going to mm -hmm. be implemented. So that's really important to highlight as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think the jargon piece is um, crucial because um, so much of what we do as people working in wildlife um is important but I feel that cutting through and making what we do accessible um is really where where it sits because if people don't understand how they're supposed to care exactly yeah absolutely and yeah I love following you and all the media work that you do and being able to make that information accessible is really inspiring so it's great to follow it did touch on a little bit earlier, um, sort of this is a the role you're working in at the moment is very much a dream role for aspiring yeah, wildlife biologists and ecologists coming through. So what do you believe are the most important ingredients for women to succeed in this industry? Oh, um, resilience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit bleak, but um, I think um, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but like positive self-talk um actually like being um believing in yourself I think it sounds so cliche and so corny but um I genuinely think that there's probably only a very short list of things that people won't be able to achieve if you really set your heart and mind to doing that so um I think backing yourself and believing in yourself is probably the biggest thing if you want to kind of get out the other side um, of your journey um, into becoming an ecologist or a biologist. Um, that's a big one. Being able to put yourself out there, which I think goes back to self-worth, self-value and believing in yourself. But um, for me, networking played a really big role, obviously. 
Um, so, you know, there's that old saying of like, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And um, I think that applies in our industry. Um, I think you need to know a lot just to get your foot in the door anyway. Like in our industry, a lot of the time, people are expecting you to have like at least a master's, if not a PhD. Um, so the what you know part is still important, um, but who you know is really important. And um, for me, um, I was really privileged that I, you know, had a scholarship to do my PhD. And so, you know, still it's a pittance, but it still helps. Um, and so I was able to kind of take up a couple of part-time gigs here and there that just like built up these networks. I did a little bit of a like part-time slash casual role in the last year of my PhD at Zoo Victoria. And I'm certain that that, that time that I did at Zoo Victoria cultivating that relationship and that friendship with my manager at Zoo Victoria, uh, if I didn't have that relationship, I'm certain I wouldn't be sitting here today in this role at WWF. So, um, making time for or leaning into those like side hustles um especially when they're relevant to your like main hustle I guess um is like pretty key but I think like bringing it back to my initial point is that like you need to feel comfortable putting yourself out there um and you need to really believe that like you can do it because you absolutely can um it really just like depends on like how much you're willing to give it um yeah I think I when I finished high school and when I was thinking about getting into medicine and when I was thinking about getting like trying to do a PhD and that kind of thing um I'll never forget forget a friend said to me I was like had broken down and was like you know I go through these phases where I'm like I'm mad enough or I'm not this enough or I'm not you know fill in the blank enough mm. um and she was like that doesn't matter like if you don't walk through the front door you'll go through the back door and if the back door's locked you'll kick in the window and go through the window and if there's no windows you'll climb up onto the roof and come down the chimney like I just really vividly remember like that piece of advice being like if you believe in it if you believe in yourself if you want to do this you'll find a way in um so I think really just like continuously like bringing yourself back to like yeah I can do it and like I'm gonna find a way to do it and you will yeah I think I should definitely take some of that on board for sure <laughs> <laughs> and for continuing on with that a little bit could you tell us some experiences you've had with any gender equality inequality within the workplace and kind of what changes you'd want to see for women in this industry hmm yeah um I think it's an interesting one um I think I've been pretty lucky or quite privileged to generally work with a community that's quite um open-minded open-hearted and quite um cognizant to the inequalities that exist but that hasn't prevented me from still having those experiences where you know you're overlooked or where your knowledge is maybe not valued the same way um and so I think that's my most 
common experience being a woman in wildlife um, is that you might be the most qualified person in the room, but um, you might also still be overlooked or, um, you know, what you say, what you say might not be heard in the same way as if a man was to say. Um, so, you know, I've had instances where I'm in a meeting and I've actually noticed it with other um, women colleagues of mine where I've been in a meeting with project partners and the person that we were, two people that we were collaborating with, one was very male dominant and dominated the other one was a researcher who's incredible, who's like the global foremost expert on this species. And one of her colleagues, who's a man, um, you know, he's also an incredible researcher as well. But the partners that we were working with just constantly de deferred to the other guy's advice or expertise and just completely overlooked. And so, yeah, I think, um, my experience is often being overlooked um, in this industry. And even things like those same partners is a project um, on greater gliders. And we were talking about deploying nest boxes and we were talking about capturing greater gliders. And I'm a climber. I have my um, training certificates in complex climbing and aerial rescue, and I'm fully qualified to do all of that work. And when we were talking about deploying nest boxes, they were very clear that we needed to get contractors in, that I could like, you know, didn't even consider, didn't even entertain the idea that I could be the one <laughs> to do that work. Um, and when I kind of said something to them about like, oh, well actually, you know, I've deployed many nest boxes and I can climb, they're like, oh, are you an arborist? <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I, I think, um, I think that, often there is still a very healthy um, very functioning um, bias that happens in the way that people receive information from women in this industry and that despite so many of us being in roles that are you know that have authority you know having done PhDs and postdocs and being research fellows um, being experts when not treated that way a lot of the time um so that's that's something that absolutely needs to change I think the most heartbreaking thing for me when that happens is when the person who is dismissing me or the person who is overlooking my expertise is a woman Interesting. that's that's the most heartbreaking part. Um, it doesn't happen super often, but it did happen maybe a few weeks ago. And I remember just being like, girl, like, <laughs> why? Like, you know, just not a single question directed to me. Um, no eye contact, like just completely like I didn't even exist at the table because my male colleague was also at the table. And it was like, I was just the... I don't know, I was just like the here to look nice and take notes or something. And I'm like, I have a PhD and I'm an expert on this thing that we're talking about. And, you know, to their credit, my colleague was like actually here as the expert on this and like kept deferring things over to me, which is the change that we need to see. But the fact that 
it was a woman that I was being overlooked by that that cuts so much deeper because coming into that meeting um it was clear to me that that she had the assumption that implicit bias or subconscious bias that out of the two of us the man was more qualified and I, I don't know if it's an age thing as well but like yeah sexism ageism any of the isms they're all kind of operating so yeah there's definitely that and then a really obvious one that I think has a pretty big impact on women still um, in this industry and virtually every other industry is pay inequality and a lack of transparency um, around pay and around salary like the research exists the social research and um, social studies exist to show that women are much more likely to undervalue themselves and to not value their time um, the same way that men do um, and so you know that's a pretty big factor in our ability to kind of have their fair and equal pay um, and you know it, it that the whole recruitment process, the whole kind of hiring process and the whole process around, um, you know, getting us into those cycles where women are not in those positions of power. And then if you go beyond just women, you know, people of color, women of color, especially anybody who is gender non-conforming, anybody from the LGBTQI plus, um, you know, all completely underrepresented in positions of power. Um, and it, it starts really at the start with who you're hiring and then it, it goes beyond that with, you know, what you're paying people. In. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's a completely, um, it's, it needs like a full overhaul, <laughs> but, um, I think starting with smaller scale stuff, um, like conversations like this and, um, creating that awareness, um, and ha having policies and practices in place that creates transparency when it comes to how organizations are tracking with with respect to representation um you know women men um everyone else um transparency is key i think because without transparency we can't clearly see where the issues are we can't clearly see who is being discriminated against we can't clearly see um who is being depressed oppressed and yeah transparency is key I think for me yeah it's also quite interesting talking about pay and stuff my work was talking about going for a job and when people look at the key selection criteria often men will look at that this is just a very stereotypical example but a man did say that he had this experience where he was looking at a job and he had one of the five experiences and of like from that role and he's like oh I'll just apply anyway who knows I might get it and all yeah. in the room were like oh I'm not applying for it I've only got five out of those six so it was interesting that it, like that dynamic as well where most often women do not give themselves you know give enough credit for what they have experience in and men don't often have the same awareness of their skill set I feel and they kind of just give it a go anyway whereas I feel like that's what women are quite lacking in potentially yeah I think it goes back to um that point a little bit that I was saying around um valuing yourself mm. because 
yeah, it is absolutely, um, you know, stereotyping, but the social studies exist that like men are way more likely to overinflate their experience to be just like, whatever, I'll give it a go kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think like as women and, you know, gender non-conforming people, like you've got to really value yourself and really believe that you can do it because if you don't do it, somebody else is already thinking that about themselves. So like you may as well. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly right. And sort of that first scenario you spoke about um, with being overlooked often, I think that is, yeah, way too familiar narrative for women working in the wildlife industry. Um, something that, yeah, I think everyone's had a bit of experience with. And even when you spoke about your female manager, that sort of systemic ingrained um, misogynistic views, I suppose, are really prevalent and yeah. this systemic issues um, within. So, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think you did really capture sort of a big picture of all of the issues that we're facing. So thank you. Um, so, yeah, we do just want to end the podcast um, by having a little quick fire question, if you're up for it. <laughs> yeah, hit me. Okay, to know you a little bit better. Do you have a field tool that you can't live without? Oh, it's got to be a GPS. But I'm like my like love for science began for me with spatial dynamics spatial ecology so absolutely gps thanks so much for coming on the podcast keto you've been an awesome first guest and really great way to kick off the podcast so really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise and yeah really um keen to keep following your work as this yeah continue your journey thanks so much guys it's been so great chatting to you and the work that you guys are doing is so important like seeing having this community of women and you know allies and beyond that are like supporting each other women supporting women it's just like makes my heart explode it's so good so you know this whole community wouldn't be around if it wasn't for you guys so thanks to you too thanks so much for listening to today's episode guys we really hope that you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it Keep your eyes peeled on our socials for our next episode, which should be launching at the end of next month. See you next time.